The Mind Itself is a podcast about mental health, mental health law, and how they affect all aspects of our daily lives. By taking a deeper dive into how our society deals with mental health medically, legally, and practically, listeners gain insight and information about one of America's most pressing and often overlooked issues that affects almost half of all adults in the United States. Hello, and welcome to the Mind Itself podcast. This is John Whitbeck, your host. I'm so excited to come to you today with two incredible guests to kick off our first episode. This is something I've wanted to do for a very long time because of my background as a mental health attorney. And now we're going to have a forum to discuss the not only the intersection between mental health and the law, but also expose you, the listener, to an incredible array of guests who are going to help us have a discussion about what the purpose of this podcast is, and that is to raise awareness of mental illness, bring and break the stigma that's associated with mental illness, and inform listeners as to things on the horizon as we improve the way our society, our government, and our mental health professionals deal with, with this incredible and important healthcare issue. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by two of, of the most amazing people that I've dealt with in mental health issues. Uh, number one, uh, Jennifer Marshall, who is executive director of This Is My Brave. And number two, my good friend, Dr. Michael Oberschneider of Ashburn Psychological Services. Welcome to you both. Jennifer, let me start with you, actually. Tell us a little bit about your background, This Is My Brave, and, and sort of what your journey's been through your advocacy in the, the field of mental health. First, thanks so much, John, for having me on and kicking off your podcast. This is exciting. So I live with type 1 bipolar disorder. I'm a 41-year-old mother, married woman, mother of two in, here in Ashburn. When my illness first came out, I was 26 years old. I was a young professional doing really well in my career, and it kind of came out of nowhere. And so I live with type 1 bipolar, and it came out in the form of two manic episodes in one month. After the second one, when I was hospitalized on Christmas Day, my family really realized that this is a serious condition that we need to learn and understand and educate ourselves about. And I grappled with you know, then a clinical depression that I had to resign from my my career that I had been doing so well in, and then found the path to recovery, found the medicine that worked for me, therapy that worked for me. But then when we went to have our children, experienced two other manic episodes that led to hospitalization. So I had four hospitalizations in five years. And that was a very isolating experience because no one in my circle of friends and family had gone through anything similar. So I felt just completely alone. But I knew in my gut that I wasn't the only one out there. And so I sought out stories from other individuals. And when I found online people writing about their experiences, I felt validated. I felt a connection. And I decided to start writing my own story. I started writing anonymously on a blog that I called bipolarmomlife.com and found it very therapeutic. But I was writing anonymously because I was afraid of being discriminated upon or judged for my condition. And when I was approached by an editor from the parenting website, What to Expect When You're Expecting to Write Publicly for Them, I made the decision to open up with put my real name on my story, put a name and face to what I had gone through. And this tremendous outpouring of support came out from the Ashburn community, from extended friends and family who didn't know what I had gone through. And it was that of love and support and, and gratitude for being open about living with a mental health condition. It made me realize that as a society, we needed something to 
allow people to tell their stories. And then that led me about six months later to launch This Is My Brave. Yeah. And I've been to your website. It's incredible. And if I'm interpreting correctly, sort of what the, the mission is here, it's to essentially do what you did. And that is get people a forum with which to tell their story, to give them an opportunity to, to meet other people that may be sharing their same struggle. And, and, it, and it's really something that, that's designed to create a community. Is that right? Exactly. Because the more we open up and share our struggles, the more we realize that you're not alone and there are others out there that have gone through similar struggles. And it just normalizes the fact that our brains get sick, just like any other organ in our body. We have heart disease, we have diabetes, we have all these physical health conditions, but we don't talk enough about the fact that sometimes things go wrong in our brain and we have to address it and learn how to manage our mental health effectively. And that's what storytellers in our community have done. And they're using their voice and their story to put a name and face with different mental health conditions and to talk about the growth that they found in recovery. And they do it creatively. So it's interesting to watch and to listen to poetry and original music and personal essays and even comedy and dance we've seen in our shows. Yeah. As a family law and mental health attorney, I certainly am familiar with um, many clients of mine and, and members of their families that have had the same struggle. And, and you're exactly right. We treat this as some sort of second-class citizen of healthcare, and it's really something that needs to be uh, brought to the forefront. Speaking of which, Dr. Michael Oberschneider is also uh, joining us. We actually call him Dr. Mike because his last hey. name is, uh, is hard to okay. spell. Not hard okay. to say, but hard to spell. Dr. Mike, it's such a great pleasure to have you on this. Uh, I couldn't think of anyone else that I would want partnering with me on this uh, today with Jennifer than you, my good friend, and someone I have tremendous respect for. Tell us, Dr. Mike, what, what's your background and tell me about Ashburn Psychological Services. Sure. So I am the founder and director of Ashburn Psychological and Psychiatric Services. We are a multidisciplinary uh, team of psychiatrists, psychologists, and therapists here in Northern Virginia. And we see all age groups from two to three on up through the lifespan, evaluations and treatments, therapies and medications included. Grateful and thankful to be part of a great team. And it's great to be out here in Loudoun County where there are so many families in need who do need the help and support. Yeah, no question about that. And Mike, you and I have collaborated on countless cases together. We've even been on the other side of some cases and the more contested ones. And I always appreciate your professionalism and what an incredible mental health professional you are. Jennifer, one of the things, and maybe for Mike as well, one of the things that maybe the stigma exists at the magnitude it does is because of an individual's reluctance to get treatment. Uh, I was a professor of mental illness law at George Mason and ran a pro bono clinic for about 10 years. And obviously, the most common refrain was always the individual that we were working with did not believe they were sick, did not believe they needed help. And, and usually, uh, they were there because of that fact. Jennifer, how, how difficult is it for folks in, in the situation that you were facing and, and maybe Mike, you as well, to really figure out, you know, I really need to get help. I really need to get treatment. That's a great question, John. And I think that it comes down to similarly to stages of grief, right? I was just at, recording an episode of our Brave TV where we talked about the grief that all of us are going through over COVID. There's acceptance as part of that is I was faced with a diagnosis when I had never had any kind of chronic condition or, or any condition where I needed to take medicine. So 
it's a big thing to have to face when you have a psychiatric episode, which I did. I had to first understand it. I had to first know that what I was facing, and then I had to come to terms with it and accept that diagnosis. And I think a lot of times Mike can speak to this, but that individuals facing mental health challenges go years without a proper diagnosis. So I think that's one of the things that is crucial is reaching out for help, getting the right help, the right diagnosis, and then coming to grips with it and knowing that until you make that decision that you want to get better, it's going to be challenging. So when I was able to accept that I wanted to get well and I wanted to manage my condition to the best of my ability, I found success in my recovery. And Mike, to that point, how difficult is it for you and maybe that first intake consultation, whatever your, you know, the, the term is, how difficult is it to break through to a person who maybe in, in Jennifer's shoes just accepted it, decided to get treatment? Tell me about that first step, that first meeting, that first treatment session you have. Well, so it depends on who's in front of you and what the issues are, right, John? So if somebody is having, you know, panic attacks or specific phobia, like, um, you know, getting on an elevator or an airplane, right? That's one sort of problem. Somebody else may come in with, with a completely different sort of problem, autism or, or something like that, or major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder. There's also the age to consider. Kids who are brought in or teens who are brought in by their parents, that's a different sort of dynamic. Sometimes those kids and teens want to be there. But even the adult with the phobia of getting on the airplane, you know, maybe he wants to be at that session, but maybe he doesn't. It's uncomfortable to certainly start therapy. Even when you want it, it can be uncomfortable. So therapy is a process. Oftentimes, the most difficult thing for me is getting to the problem. I wouldn't say too late, but later. I enjoy working with kids and teens because, for example, when a four or five-year-old is diagnosed with autism, it's fresh, it's new, the child is developing, the parents are on board to work with that child to get him or her to a better place developmentally, right? So there's a lot of motivation from the parents. And if you approach the problem or the situation well with the child and establish rapport, even the, the child gets on board and, and slowly and over time gets better. That sort of dynamic and situation, even with troubled teens, teens who are depressed or anxious or smoking pot or doing something they shouldn't, cutting something where in situations where they're acting out their pain, even those teens are more malleable because developmentally they're at a younger age. And even if their parents are bringing them in to therapy, they're young enough that the problem, the situation is easier to access, even if it takes time. They're more malleable, the kids and teens in treatment. Oftentimes, and what's difficult for me is when a situation, a patient comes in and the problem's been going on for years, right? And then you have a set of defense mechanisms. You have a a style even. Uh, It can become part of your personality, right? Just your way of being. One situation that comes to mind, and, and, it, and it comes up here at the practice all the time, is screen time overuse, right? Technology overuse, uh, whether it's video games or social media. I often see these kids and teens that come in and they're playing too much Minecraft or Call of Duty or they're spending too much time on YouTube, whatever the issue is. It has something to do with technology overuse. That's easier to treat at the front end, right? When the kids or teens are younger, much more difficult to work with when the 27, 28-year-old has come in, has, has failed maybe college a couple times, has tried a few jobs, is still living at home. But the issue had been going on for 10 or 12 years, right? It's still something that can be treated and needs to be treated. It's more difficult. 
So what I tell families, and hopefully I'm going to relate that message here too, is the sooner you get in, as difficult it is for you, for your child, for your teen who says he or she doesn't want to come, doesn't need it, or if you're experiencing depression or panic attacks or whatever you're experiencing as an adult that you think you can muscle through, I would say to you that as soon as you get your kid or teen or yourself in here, the sooner we can really work on it, the better, right? Because the problem becomes more difficult to really, really access and, and treat and for real change to occur when it's been a part of you for a really long time. I would agree with you, Mike. I mean, that's why uh, one of our partners is Mental Health America, and they have their before stage four mindset where mental health is one of the only areas of medicine where it's almost like we wait until we're in that crisis moment. And we shouldn't. We should be taking care of our mental health from a young age and instilling in our kids that it's important to have that balance. In fact, I was just having that conversation with my son in his therapy appointment Monday about screen time. And we set a technology agreement that we both could come to terms with that. I think it's important he takes care of his mental health because we know we've read these studies on screen time effects on teens. And I want to curb it from from the beginning, from age 12 with him. It's important to know that kids know that taking care of their mental health should be just the same as like, I almost equate it to like dental hygiene and we brush our teeth, we floss our teeth. It's like, why aren't we doing check-ins with our mental health, you know, regularly? That's a great, great point, Jennifer. If I could add on to that, we know, and you can go to NIH's website, pubmed.com, or you could just go to Google and search psychotherapy studies, preventative as a search term, preventative, and psychotherapy and problems, if you want to do that as a search term. And you will see studies that will come up. Uh, They've done really good research studies to show the benefits of psychotherapy at the front end. You know, if you do therapy, when your issues or problems are more mild range, you will benefit. I mean, they've even done studies to show that individuals who commit to psychotherapy, much like they would commit to going to the dentist or doing those other things, those other self-care moments, right, have lower rates of missing work, lower rates of hospitalizations, ER visits, all sorts of other healthcare issues that follow, heart disease, all sorts of other issues that follow in terms of taking care of your body. So we know, we know from the research that it works on the front end and it works when you make a commitment to it, right? But but we still live in a society that thinks, I think in, in large part, unfortunately, that things have to be really bad to go see someone like Jennifer or me, and they don't. And they shouldn't be. I would add to that as the attorney in the room, our entire legal structure in most states, if not all states, is set up only to deal with crises. There is very little, if any, mechanism for a concerned family member, spouse, friend, police officer, whoever's dealing with a a mental health situation to use the legal system as a means of getting someone help. We only treat those people in my world where in litigation and whatnot and and use of the law at the very, very tip of the spear of crisis. One of the things that I, I, and even to give you how hard it is, I tried to move a bill through the Virginia legislature to try to make it a little bit easier. And the resistance among the establishment in this particular world was incredible. So we do it to ourselves. It's not just a situation where, you know, the stigma keeps us from getting help. We've built a structure of laws and policies that, that also restricts mental health and adds to the problem, I think, 
Jennifer, one of the things that I loved about your website and, and sort of this is my brave is, is the shows that you put on, the live shows. Tell me a little bit about that. that I, if I'm listening to this and I'm thinking about what are some of the things that I can do to help my, my corporation, my, my business, yep. my, my organization, what about having, instead of having a motivational speaker come and talk about America and patriotism or you know, strive for achievement, how about protecting our mental health or dealing with our mental health like Mike was talking about? Tell me about that, that, that show feature you have on, in your organization. I'm so glad you asked, John, because that's what we were built on. So you know, my idea was let's have a theater show where we can celebrate recovery and let folks tell their stories. So we did the first show in 2014 in Arlington at the Spectrum Theater, sold out 400 seats, covered in all the major news outlets. After that first show's success, people in other cities said, I want to bring it to my town. And basically, we created this model and then worked hand in hand with these volunteers in other cities to create more shows. And we've grown over the past seven years. Now to date, we've done 75 unique productions featuring 875 people across the U.S. who have told their stories on our stages. It's a process where folks come, you know, they see that there's a call for storytellers. They come out, they audition with a piece that they've prepared to tell the story in the show, and then they're cast. And then it's a, it's a journey to the stage where they go through rehearsals and then they um, have that experience on stage. And it's an experience for the audience members as well. So COVID was a huge challenge for us because we were an in-person live events, nonprofit organization, but we've, I think, done a really exceptional job of pivoting as an organization to still make these uh, experiences possible for the virtual space. So our five shows streamed on our YouTube channel in October, um, and they're available for everyone to view. And organizations that want to bring This Is My Brave in they're welcome to use any of the videos on our YouTube channel. We also have speakers you can book to come in. But yeah, it's it's an important thing that to use these resources that my organization puts out that get a conversation started in your workplace. I mean, that's a huge area where we need to support mental health um, and wellness. So right. it's out there. I mean, what Jennifer has done with This Is My Brave is so impressive and so important in so many ways. Because we know that the connection between creativity and imagination, right? One's imagination, one's creativity, and their mental health. We know that there is a lot of overlap in those areas. And I'm reminded by the father of psychoanalysis, uh, Sigmund Freud, over 100 years ago. It's relevant today. A lot of what he said maybe isn't relevant today. But, but I think some of what he said is still relevant, including this. He said that the arts and creative pursuits the opera, dance, music. It, he called those pursuits regression in service to the ego. And what he meant by that was, and, and that it was good for you, and that we all need to do that more. That was his point. And what he means by the ego is that sense of self, right? Who we are. And that when you regress in service of the ego, when you go to an art gallery, for example, or you go to see a ballet, or you go to the opera, or you go to a rock concert, even today, I guess, you know, it could be more relevant today to say other things. But when you, when you allow yourself to just leave your mindset, leave yourself and escape and just regress, he, that was his word, which is, I would say, escape into those pursuits, you really are centering yourself, right? You're taking care of yourself. You're nurturing that emotional part of you, that psychological part of you. And that's so important. 
And yeah. so that's what she that's what she's done here with her organization. She's given these people with mental health issues a vehicle to express themselves and also therapeutic by doing that, also to work on themselves. It's therapeutic what she's doing. It's wonderful. Jennifer, you had said the organization is there to make sure that everybody knows they're not alone, creates a community, helps people deal with the struggle by equating them with people that have been through the same thing, right? Mike, one of the things that probably I would think would really keep someone from getting treatment is it just sounds really unpleasant to take a lot of medication or to have to go to counseling or, or, or whatnot. It's a lot, it's a commitment and, and whatever else that they may, may feel about it. What are right. some of the things you do, Mike, to try to reduce the anxiety or the, the unpleasantness that they may feel about having to go to treatment regularly as a professional? I think what Jennifer has done is she's taken a really creative approach to working on the mental health issues, right, for someone. So it is more interactive. There is a sense of community that happens there. And she may want to add to that after my comment. What I do is more formal. It's psychotherapy. It's we do medications here. We do therapy. We do evaluations to diagnose things. So it is more, I guess, clinical in that regard. A good mature therapist, a good mature psychiatrist will be able to or should be able to because it's a science and it's also an art. Even in my room, it's a science and an art. You have to connect with the kid across from you or the adult across from you. You have to meet them where you are, where they are with tact and timing and care and respect. And through that unfolding process, right, it's not quite a ballet or, or a concert or a poetry reading, but there is an unfolding process that happens in the room and it doesn't need to be clinical. I, I have several teenagers I work with who find this room that I'm sitting in to be too stifling. So we don't sit in this room. We go for a milkshake at Pop Bellies down the road, or we take it outside to the park. A therapy can happen, and Jennifer's organization is proof of that. Therapy can happen anywhere, a good therapy. Most of the time, though, I stay in this room, right, with or without a milkshake. And we work on what we need to work on. But if, you know, if a client has a set of symptoms and a condition and is motivated enough toward wellness and wants to get to meaningful change, and you're respectfully with tact again, with tact and timing and care, working with them with where they are, it shouldn't be laborious. It shouldn't be a chore. It shouldn't be overclinical, right? It should be good. And when the, the end product, and I refer to my own therapy as an adolescent when I was younger, the end product does, it works. And when you see it working, when you start feeling better, when the depression improves, when the anxiety symptoms dissipate or fade out, or the social struggles become less, or you rely less on pot or marijuana, or not at all, hopefully, eventually, because you've learned other ways to cope or manage beyond cutting or drug use. Or, you know, when you start to feel that happen, it's powerful, John. It's wonderful, right? Yeah. It's curative. With a commitment, it can be lifelong. So, yes, what I do here is more clinical than what Jennifer is doing more creatively over there, but it really is the same process and the outcome should be the same. It is therapeutic to use the art. And, and, you know, we're working to prove that through our research is the effect that going through our process and, and really making sense of your story as you're creating this piece to bring to the stage and to express it, it is transformative and it's empowering. And that's part of why I love what I do, because we help people realize that. And then through professional you know services, they're able to also incorporate that into their life. And and like Mike said, it should be an enjoyable process. I mean, not every session is enjoyable, but like you're working on yourself to better yourself and to, you know, you have to have that motivation. So, right. 
Jennifer, the thing I noticed about you is if I met you, I would never have known that your story was what it was. Tell me a little bit about if you could, what do you do to continue to stay healthy and, and do the things that you do? You obviously have a tremendous commitment to your organization, but you've been through a lot. What is the power you have to fight this thing and, and, and to be as, as fantastic as you are? Well, thank you. I, I love that question because it's true. You know, today I'm a very different person than I was 15 years ago when I was first experiencing my my mental illness. I've learned a lot over these 15 years. And like you said, people might not realize all that I've been through because of the appearance that I, you know, share today, but it was very difficult. Um, psychosis and mania are intense experiences. But what I've learned is that you can get the upper hand on your condition and you can manage it well. And so I had to understand the triggers of my condition. So for me, it's intense stress and lack of quality sleep. And also, you know, having that stability in my life, I have a very strong support system around me. Over the years, I've incorporated daily exercise and healthy eating and mindfulness and regular therapy. And and I see my psychiatrist regularly. Uh, And these are all the things that keep me mentally well. Right. I would just add from the legal perspective, mental health law is all about coming up with a strategy to get someone help in an imperfect system. And a lot of times what I struggle with, you know, most of my clients that come in to talk to me about mental health law are, uh, how can I get my son, my daughter, my brother, my sister, my mother, my father, how can I get them help? And then I have to you know, within an imperfect system, come up with a strategy to to do that. And and usually it's in a crisis. Usually it's at the point of near suicide, uh, somebody in psychosis, mania, et, et cetera. Mike, what do you find is the long-term strategy for treatment that you employ when someone has reached uh, a point where they've really come through the toughest part? So I have a saying, John, that I, I like that people should go to therapy to live their lives. They shouldn't live their lives to go to therapy. So I believe that, you know, sometimes in life, you know, if you've done enough work, it's good to take a break, right? It's good to take a break. Really, people usually come to our practice, whether it's for Prozac or for for medication or for therapy or for an evaluation to, to figure something out, right? And if there are symptoms to reduce symptoms, right? So once those symptoms are reduced and enough insight and self-awareness has been gained in order to make really meaningful changes, in those moments, I often recommend taking a break and going and exploring yourself in different ways. And if the symptoms return or if problems return, then come on back that my door is always open. I've done that across 20 years of my career now where I'll see, I've seen clients or patients at, at age four who have come back for marital counseling in their mm-hmm. early 20s or before you know, for this issue or that issue to come up. Having that open door with the therapist is a good thing. And continuing the therapy only when it's really beneficial and needed is also a good thing, right? Right. I had the good fortune of going to a really good um, doctoral program in clinical psychology at George Washington. And the director there, Dr. Jim Miller, he was a fantastic uh, psychologist and director. And he he's no longer with us. He passed away. But And I'm not sure if the program still does this, but it was a requirement at that program that, you know, as much as they could make it a requirement, right? But it was, it wasn't quite mandated, uh, but it was really, you know, expected of you to, while you were there for five years or so, to be in weekly psychotherapy or more, to really practice your craft and to really take advantage. And I did an additional five years of my own therapy. 
did I did I necessarily need it uh, in the sense of the world saying, well, Mike needs therapy? Probably not. I don't think I needed it. But did I benefit from it tremendously? Yes. Yes, I did. So there really, really is a benefit to the wellness model and foreseeing therapy, medication management, all of that as part of the wellness model or self-care model. Jennifer, with the time we have left, I want to ask you, imagine a listener sitting out there has been struggling with mental health issues now, really isn't getting the kind of treatment that they need. What is the best advice you can give them for taking that first step? I would say that therapy is people associate it with kind of like dating. You know, you have to have a connection with your counselor. Don't be afraid to, you know, try more than one. And if the first one isn't a connection, try a different one. So I I think that when you find a good counselor, like Mike said, it can be a lifelong process, but there, there is a great, you know, it is good to take breaks from time to time and then really get to know yourself outside of therapy too. But that would be my piece of advice is don't be afraid to date around when it comes to counselors because, you know, finding a good fit makes all the difference. Mike, uh, how would somebody go about getting a hold of you if they wanted to talk to you or one of your clinicians about, about therapy? Well, thanks, John. I think the two most obvious ways, well, the phone number, if I can give it here, is uh, just 703-723-2999, 2999 and then our webpage, I mean, we live in the digital world, right? So the webpage may even be more attractive. It's going to give you more information on the front end. That would be Ashburn Psych, which is P-S-Y-C-H.com, AshburnPsych.com. We have a terrific office manager who's been doing this for 25 years, Christine Cutt, and she will spend plenty of time on the phone with every person, any person who calls here, plenty of time to make sure, first of all, that we're the right place. And, and even in terms of offering services, that what we're offering is the right offering. Sometimes uh, clients will call and they say, well, I need, I need medication or I need therapy or I need a, I need a neuropsych eval. Uh, well, maybe, maybe you do uh, need one of those things. Um, maybe you don't need medication. Maybe you just need some counseling and a few or some parent guidance work if you're worried about your kid or teenager. Maybe the, the child or the teen doesn't even need to come in. Maybe we just work with the parents. Christine Cut up front, our office manager, is fantastic, and she'll really walk through with the client the process. She'll meet with me. We'll discuss it. We staff all cases so that at the very front end, we're taking care of, as we should be, right, respectfully, the prospective patient's needs. And Jennifer, I first learned about you and, and what you're doing through the Community View article you wrote for Loud Times Mirror, which I'm not ashamed to say I am a a junkie for local news and a lot of times mirror and whatnot. Known, known the staff there for many years, a great, great newspaper. And I was just struck by it. It was, uh, well, first of all, your beautiful family and, and everything, but it was, it was really an incredible uh, writing. And I took the opportunity to go to This Is My Brave. And, and I have to say, whoever does your website is incredible. It's a really great website. How can somebody who wants more information about you or This Is My Brave reach out and, and, and find that? Our website is thisismybrave.org. And across all social media platforms, we're just at This Is My Brave. And we like to stay active out there on social and share inspiring messages and inspiring video clips and quotes from our storytellers. And also on YouTube, like I said before, you can view any of our past performances by going to youtube.com slash This Is My Brave. Excellent. That's about uh, a wrap for today. I I really uh, enjoyed this. Thank you so much for being on our episode one of 
the Mind Itself podcast dedicated to, from this day forward, helping break the stigma of mental illness and helping people get through this uh, incredibly important healthcare crisis that we, we find ourselves in. Jennifer Marshall, Dr. Michael Oberschneider, thank you so much and God bless you both. Thanks, John. Thanks, Thanks John. Jennifer. The Mind Itself podcast is unique in that we look at the intersection between mental health and the law and how it impacts you. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave a comment, rate, and review, and share with someone you know. Thanks for listening.